Heavenly Father, that is our prayer this morning. We want to see you. You are holy. We declare today that you are the Holy One, the Most High God. We praise you for your ways are holy, righteous and true. And we give you our worship this morning. We declare that, that your love stands firm forever. Your loving kindness and your faithfulness are new every morning. Lord, as we reflect on this past week and as we come before the start of a new week, we acknowledge our need of you. We need you more than ever. Please direct our hearts and our minds towards you and fill us with the Holy Spirit. Father, bring refreshing, renewal, bring peace and joy. Forgive us for the times we have worked hard to be self-sufficient, finding or forgetting our, our, our need of you, living independently of your spirit. Father, forgive us for letting fear and worry control our minds rather than letting you fill our minds. When we've allowed pride and selfishness to wreak havoc over us, forgive us for not following your ways. Thank you, Lord, for this, this Easter season as we remember all that Jesus Christ has done for us, your, your amazing love, your love for us that sent your Son to come, to be with us, to die for us. Jesus' love for us in going all the way to the cross. Today is Palm Sunday and we join those crowds that gathered on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Hosanna. Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the King. Father, we bring our praise to you for all you are and all you have done for us. In our Saviour's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, for those who may not have met me last week or been online to see, uh, I'm um, Brent Allred, uh, the new interim pastor here at um, Roval, and delighted to be here with Glenda, my wife, to uh, spend this, this season with you. I wasn't expecting to be here on the stage quite this early in the service. Um, maybe when you go for a drive, you're not quite sure what's going to happen. I got a text. I can't come in today, I have to isolate. Um, and so we've got to be flexible in this COVID time uh, and uh, step into things that we weren't expecting to do. So just um, bear with me if your notice is a little bit vague today because I'm trying to get my head around what happens around this place and what I needed to share with you this morning. But I do know that it's Easter uh, that's coming up, so we'll get that one right. Um, and we have some things coming up this, this weekend, uh, coming up that we'd really love you to be part of. The first of those is our Good Friday service on Friday um, at 10 o'clock in the morning. Time we can gather to, uh, to remember, to reflect, to reconnect with um, God's love for us, demonstrated to us in what Jesus did for us on the cross. 
Um, this will be a little bit different to what you've been experiencing for Good Friday over the last um, I don't know, couple of years, three or four years. Um, we're having a mixture of readings, reflections, um, some vi- visual stuff happening, uh, singing, engaging in communion together. And uh, this will be suitable for children that may want to come as well. So we do invite you to come. It will be um, live streamed, but it will be much more um, engaging for you if you can be here in the service if you're able to do that. So 10 o'clock on Good Friday. And then again on Sunday, 10 o'clock, our normal time for our morning service, and we'll be coming to celebrate uh, the resurrection, the good news that Jesus is alive. I hope we have in him. If you have children, whether they are your children as parents here or grandparents that you have grandchildren, um, we have a little resource that was available in this week's um, newsletter that came out on Friday, Walking Through Holy Week. It has some great resources from Focus on the Family just to help families think about Easter, what Easter means to them in some child-friendly ways, some activities, recipes, um, crafts, puzzles, a whole range of things. So there are a limited supply of these on the table at the back in the foyer. You're welcome to grab one of those or just download it from the uh, newsletter that came out on, on Friday. Before I share with you this morning, I'd like us to um, just stop and watch a video. Um, this video, just so that you are aware, I don't think we have any children with us this morning. There's a few in the back in the room. Uh, towards the end, it does get a little bit graphic. It's nothing horrific, but just so that you're aware... Um, there's a little bit of, of graphic material at the very end of this video. But let's um, just stop, reflect, and think about what this day is all about before I come and share with you. Thanks, guys. and that now famous Maccabean. But this Jesus, this new champion, was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey as Zechariah had envisioned him. This king was coming to daughter Zion to take the wicked Roman chariots away from Ephraim. Surely this Jesus was the one to bring God's people salvation. Surely he was the one pictured all across the prophet's hopeful panorama. So they shouted, save us, please. They cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. And this Jesus would answer yes to their cry of save us, save us. But not in the way they expected. Not by the violent overthrow predicted by their palmy political propaganda. For the humility of that donkey was nothing compared to the way he would answer their shouts of Hosanna. For the path on which he rode took him not to a throne, but to a court. Not to a place fit for a heavenly king, but to the feet of an earthly lord. 
It was there, before another crowd, in the hands of Pilate, whom God endowed with the power to answer the shouts rising loud, demanding crucifixion for this man who was so recently avowed as Hosanna by those who had laid down a pathway of both palm branch and personal shroud. It was there that he would show how he would answer both crowds, both the Hosanna save us cry and the incessant crucify. For what was missed by each tribe, by those who cried out their Hosanna boast and those who cried that this man should be nailed upon two posts, is that Jesus would say no to neither request. Instead, he would say yes to both. In fact, he would accomplish salvation by such infliction. He would be Hosanna by undergoing crucifixion. He would say yes to cries of love and yes to cries of hate. And for us, it is good news that he answered this way. For we too cry Hosanna. We too need to be saved. But we also cry crucify him. We also are filled with hate. We need to be rescued from our evil. But when goodness comes to us, we take what is good and by our evil hang it on a cross. But this is how he saves us. This is how he loves us. He answered our cry of need and our cry of hate with one final yes poured out as he cried so that the sin that put him on the cross he paid for as he died and the salvation for which we asked by his yes he supplied. So come lay down your branches and come lift up your palms for the king of our salvation said yes to the night of death so that he could raise the light of dawn. As we've, we've already heard, today marks the beginning of Easter week. Some call it Holy Week. The week that begins with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey that goes through to the Last Supper he has with his disciples on the Thursday night, his arrest in Gethsemane, right through to his crucifixion. And climaxing with his resurrection on Sunday morning. The most important week in the Christian calendar for those of us who follow Jesus. I invite you this morning uh, to turn with me, whether you're here in the the service this morning or watching online today, um, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem begins in a, a small village out in Galilee. It was the festival season of Passover. And the city of Jerusalem was, was bursting with people who travelled all over the country and even beyond Israel with pilgrims, visitors and travellers who'd come to celebrate this amazing, um, probably the, one of the most well-known feasts of, of the Jews. Census records of the day say that there could have been about 2.5, 2.5 million people in this little city 
for this festival and for most festivals that came. People had gathered. If you were a male Jew, you had to be here by law if you lived within a certain perimeter of the city. But people would flock to this celebration to celebrate God rescuing his people. To remembering the night that a sacrificed lamb, the blood of that lamb, posted over the doorposts of the people's houses, saved the Israelites from death that came as the angel of death swept over Egypt, killing the firstborn. This is the celebration that they were having, the, the remembrance of what they were, were celebrating. And we see Jesus makes his way into the city to celebrate with his disciples, knowing what lies ahead of him in the next few days. Behind him are his parables and his stories. Ahead of him is his suffering. Behind him are weddings and celebrations and amazing parties and meals with his friends. Ahead of him is his last meal that he'll have with his disciples. Behind him, the delights of Galilee, this province where the people loved him, they, they, they enjoyed his teaching, they followed him. Ahead lay the darkness, the agony of Gethsemane, Golgotha. And so let's read from Matthew chapter 21, uh, verses 1 to 11. The words are on the screen for you if you don't have your Bibles with you as well. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt beside her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord has need of them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. See, or sorry, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them as Jesus, uh, for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus had spent the night with, in the home of, of, of friends in Bethany on the opposite side of the Mount of Olives to the east of the city, about eight kilometres from Jerusalem. Historians tell us that um, the local or the, the, the people around the region of, of, um, of the country um, all had their own place where they would come and camp when they came to one of the festivals in Jerusalem. There wasn't enough accommodation in the city for the, the, the crowds that would gather for these major festivals. 
Airbnb hadn't caught on in Jerusalem at this point. And if the people couldn't stay with family, which is what they normally did, if there was not enough room for them there, they would camp out on the outskirts of the city. The south end of the Mount of Olives had for years been the camping ground for the people of Galilee. These were the unsophisticated, the the simple living people of the area, the peasants, the common people, among whom Jesus had spent most of his time, where he had performed most of his miracles, where he had preached most of his sermons. They knew Jesus best, these people of Galilee. On several occasions we read in the Gospels that the Galileans tried to make Jesus the king. Jesus was popular among these people. But there were others in the city who did not see Jesus as popular. They were the wealthy religious leaders of the day. The scribes and Pharisees, we often hear that term throughout the New Testament. And Jesus had often antagonised these people by referring to them as hypocrites. He'd spoken against their legalism, the additional demands and rules and regulations that they had placed around the, the, the law of Moses, rules that made sure they didn't break the laws, but became so onerous, so oppressive on the people that to live for God became this demanding, uh, rule-filled life. They replaced God's law of compassion and grace and, and decency with rules, a religion of rules. Remember the time that Jesus made his way to the synagogue and there found a man who had a, a, a um, shriveled hand. And he healed this man. As Jesus couldn't stop healing people that he saw. He had compassion for people. But the problem was, this was the Sabbath. And you don't heal on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. What did the law of Moses say? You must not work on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees took that phrase, that command, to the extreme. Even boiling water in your house washing or wiping a dish, pulling an animal out of the mud on a Sabbath was breaking the rule. And so Jesus offended these Pharisees by healing this man who had a hand that he couldn't couldn't use. And Mark's account of this episode in the the, um, synagogue ends with these words. The Pharisees went out, went out from the synagogue and began to plot with the Herodians, how they might kill Jesus. The Herodians were a Jewish political group who had, um, were sided with King Herod, who had been placed by the Romans in charge of the people. So not even a, a king of the people, but a king of the Romans. So that's a bit of the context of uh, this passage in Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus begins it was enters into the city riding on a donkey. Now let's just stop for a moment with that picture in your mind and think about what's going on here. Jesus, a proclaimed king, riding on a donkey. Kings don't ride on donkeys. A couple of weeks ago was the service of Thanksgiving for um, Prince Philip in, in um, 
Westminster Abbey. And the royal family, well, pretty much all the royal family, there was one um, grandson who wasn't there, um, but the royal family and other dignitaries all gathered in all their pomp and glory and ceremony for this remembrance or this Thanksgiving service. Imagine if Queen Elizabeth had decided to leave the Bentley parked in the garage and go on a donkey and gone to Westminster. It's unheard of. Or imagine sometime in the future where Prince Charles decides at his coronation he will dispense with the horse-drawn, beautiful gold state coach that's been used for the coronation of kings and queens since 1821 and come to Westminster on a donkey. It's unheard of. It's absurd. It's almost offensive. The king or the future queen arriving on a donkey. But that's how King Jesus arrives into Jerusalem. Now, there are other things I could say about why Jesus chose a donkey. We're not going to go down there, but there's lots of reasons why he did that. Notice in Matthew 21, verse 9, if you've still got your Bibles open there, that there are two are groups of people in this procession. Matthew says the crowds, it refers to the, the crowds that went ahead of him. These are the, the people who had come out of Jerusalem um, to, to see what's going on. Their, their curiosity had got the better of them. They'd heard the noise, the commotion, the activity down the valley and they'd made their way out of the city to see what is going on out here. That's the crowd ahead of Jesus. The crowd that Matthew says that followed him and were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, were the Galileans. The ones who had recognised Jesus as he made his way through their campsite, um, their, their campsites on the east of the city. Now we tend to merge these two crowds into one. I know growing up I always thought it was the same crowd. That suddenly from... Palm Sunday, a couple of days later, is calling out, crucify, crucify. But it was the jubilant Galileans who were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to our King. And the religious leaders of Jerusalem, the, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the ones who had planned Jesus' death for, for early into his, his ministry, they started doing this. And the renter crowd that they'd pulled around them who are crying, crucify him. So two groups of people in the procession. But not just one procession, but two processions. Now the story of, of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem um, is one that's familiar to those of us who've been attending church, reading our Bibles, following Jesus for, for many years. It's a story we retell every Easter. But what you may not know, and I didn't know this until I started reading and preparing this week for, for today, that on this day, there wasn't one procession into Jerusalem, but there were two. One was a peasant procession coming in from the east of the city with Jesus riding on a donkey. The one that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all report and record in their Gospels. The other one was an imperial procession, a procession from the east with the governor of Judah, Pontius Pilate, 
leading a column of Roman soldiers into the city, which may have looked something like that. Imagine the spectacle of this procession. Pilate leading his, his Roman um, soldiers as they come into the city, coming in through the royal gate, the gate where they would always come in every time they came to the city, the gate that David and others had gone through, right through the, the, um, the, New, the Old Testament on the, on the western side of the town. Each soldier clad in leather armoured, leather armoured, polished to, to a gleam and a shine. On each centurion's head, a hammered steel helmet. At their sides, swords made of the hardest steel. In their hands, each centurion carrying a spear. If you're an a, a archer, uh, um, bows and arrows on your, on your shoulder. Drummers, beating the beat so the soldiers would keep in time. Pilate as, as, was, was the governor of this region and as governor he knew um, that it was standard practice for the Roman um, governor of any province around the Roman Empire to, um, to go to the capital city of their territory during a time of national festivals. It was usually a, a time when things could go wrong if you were a Roman governor. It was the beginning of Passover, a festival, a Jewish festival the Romans had actually allowed the Jews to keep. Now the Romans would have been aware what this festival was all about. This was a festival celebrating the um, deliverance of God's people from another empire, the empire of the Egyptians that was oppressive. And here the Jews in another empire that's just as oppressive. So Pilate had to be in Jerusalem. It was politically astute for him to be there. Since the, the Romans had, had occupied um, this land by defeating the Jews and, and, and deposing their king 80 years earlier, uprisings were, were constantly bubbling away right around the country. The last major one of these uprisings happened long before Pilate's time. It started after the death of King Herod the Great around the time of Jesus, or soon after Jesus had been born. That uprising um, happened in the town of Sephorus, about eight kilometres from um, Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. So you've got to see, think Nazareth, Jerusalem, is not far away from here. The Romans came in, they wiped out that city, which was the capital city of the Galileans, also the town of Emmaus. And after they put that rebellion down, they came down into Jerusalem and made sure that they had their control re-established in the capital and then crucified 2,000 Jews who they said were part of this rebellion. So the Romans had made their intolerance of uprisings pretty well known to the local people. And so on this occasion, Pilate comes down to Jerusalem uh, from his city on the coast where he had his, his fortress uh, to the crowded provincial town or city of Jerusalem to say, I'm the boss. Pilate's spectacular entry was meant to send a message to the Jews, to those who might be plotting against his empire or the Roman Empire. His show of strength was to remind the Jews 
of what had happened last time a major uprising had happened. It was meant to intimidate the citizens to think twice about joining something else again. And so here we have these two processions coming into the city. From the east, Jesus on his donkey. From the west, Pontius Pilate with his imperial army. If Pilate's procession was meant to show strength and power and might, Jesus' procession showed the, the, um, the, the complete opposite. Because Jesus was and is a different king. Not the sort of king the people were expecting or hoping, a different king. As Matthew in this um, opening part of, of chapter 21 describes the account of this day, he says something almost that could be seen as being in parentheses, if we could draw those around in, in, in the text, to the, the rest of the narrative. If you look at verse, um, verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew is quoting here a prophecy that um, Zechariah had made 500 years earlier. And Matthew is keen to point out to his, his readers of his day and to us today that what he writes about here actually fulfills a prophecy made five centuries earlier. You may like to turn with me to the prophecy that um, Isaiah is quoting here. It will be on the screen as well. Um, it's in Zechariah um, 9 verse 9. And Zechariah is the second to last book of the Old Testament, so you can just flick through there if you have a paper Bible. If you've got an electronic one, it'll be quickly, pretty easy to find that as we have a look at this verse. Zechariah 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. So daughter Zion, daughter of Jerusalem is like saying inhabitants of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Pretty much the same as what Matthew quotes here in his gospel. Now if you have turned to your Bible in Zechariah 9, you'll see that this, this quotation comes from a, a larger chapter that your Bible might have um, chapter subheadings where it says this is all about um, the prophecy of the coming king of Zion and how God will save his people. So this is a, a part of that um, broader, wider prophecy. But the opening phrase of this part that Matthew's quoting here, say to the daughter of Zion, comes from an even earlier prophet. This is going to, I hope you'll bear with me through this. We're going to get through this. Just stay with me and we'll get to the end. It won't take too much long. I want to say some things I think is really important to know why all this is being said. So say to the daughter of Zion actually comes from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 62 verse 11. And there Isaiah says, The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, See your saviour comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Say to daughter Zion, see your saviour comes. Now keep with me, it's going to take just a moment. 
If you're reading this passage in the King James Version or the ESV, do any people have that today? They're all NIVs, okay. If you had been reading this in the King James Version or the ESV, English Standard Version, um, those translations change a couple of words in these quotes. Um, It's a word that we don't tend to use a lot of today. Um, We don't hear it in um, in our everyday language. But it's a word that has a greater sense of, of gravitas and how it tends to come across in the NIV. And it's the word behold. Anyone use behold this week? <laughs> no. It's got this idea of saying, look, look at this, look. Not just see. See sounds quite, I don't know, gentle. This is really making a statement. Behold, your king comes to you. Behold, your salvation comes. Now, if you were in the King James or the ESV, you'll see they actually changed that word um, saviour to salvation, which I've got here. Uh, In the NIV it says saviour. So are we all here still? (laughs) You got that? Two words I want you to think of. Behold, look at this. This is amazing, is what they're saying. And this man on the donkey is a saviour, but he is salvation. I want us to sit with that for a moment. I've taken this time to do this bit of grammatical gymnastics because I want us to see the importance of those two words. The difference between see and behold, saviour and salvation. Because I think it's important to understand what Matthew and the prophets before him um, were, were saying. Behold, look at this. This is important. Don't miss it. Here is your king riding on a donkey. But not just a king. He is your salvation. Not just your saviour, but salvation. Your salvation the salvation of the world. This salvation that Isaiah and is alluded to in Matthew and the, uh, as well um, is the one salvation. Alistair Begg is the senior pastor at Parkdale um, or Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio. And he says this about this one salvation. There's not one salvation for separate groups of people. There's only one salvation because there's only one saviour. And there's only one saviour because no one else is qualified to serve. No one else is God incarnate. No one else is the sacrificial lamb. No one else has kept the law in its perfection and lived a life we should live but can't. No one else has died in the place of sinners. There is no one else. There is, Alistair Begg says, no other salvation. Now that's not what the world thinks, is it? The world would say there are are all kinds of salvation available in all different ways, all sorts of ways. The world would say there are many ways to God. There are many ways to be saved. You can take your pick, whatever you like, whatever fits your lifestyle, whichever fits your preference is good for you. 
how dare you claim to have the one salvation, the world says. How dare you be so intolerant or arrogant to claim that your way is the only way. That Jesus is the only salvation. Have you heard that said around you? Have you heard that come up in conversations when you've tried to tell someone about Jesus and their need for them to know him? How dare you claim this? But this salvation is the only salvation. There is no other salvation. Look at what Isaiah says in Isaiah 43:22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. In Acts 4, Peter, now empowered by the Holy Spirit, no longer the fearful, let's run and hide Peter, the, the I don't know who this man is, Peter. This is Peter who is a new man. And he stands before the religious leaders and preaches to them. These leaders who a few months earlier or years earlier had started to plan this, but had certainly got down to the, to the, the pointy end and had plotted Jesus' death, arranged for him to be betrayed, uh, tried him in a kangaroo court, handed him over to the Romans and had him executed. This is what Peter says in chapter 12, uh, verse 12 of chapter 4. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in no one else. Jesus himself says in John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Remember Jesus, um, I think this is John who records this, um, is at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths is also known. A festival that involves or involved the high priest every day going down to the pool of Siloam, getting a jug of water, taking it back up to the temple and pouring it over the altar. Happened every day, every morning. This is the last day of that festival. And Jesus is there in the temple with this, this crowd, of, crowd of people and his part will be a crowd of men. And as the high priest begins to pour this water over the altar, Jesus booms out in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So how do you find this salvation? How can you be saved? How can you have your thirst quenched with this life-giving water? this life-giving water that Jesus promises to those who believe in him. Well, simply by doing that, by believing. This salvation is totally free. There is a cost, but the cost is borne by Jesus on the cross for us. For us, it's free. It's available to us whenever we're willing to admit that we've sinned when we admit that we need a saviour because we're sinful. And we all need a saviour, every one of us. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, not just some, all of us. We all miss the mark. That's what sin is. Putting an arrow and shooting it at a, at a target and missing the bullseye. That's what sin is. We, we can never get to that bullseye because of sin. We miss the mark. We mess up. We can't fix the mess of our lives on our own. And that's where Jesus comes in. The gift of God is forgiveness, salvation, eternal life through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, his son, the son riding on a donkey, the king riding towards a crown, not a crown made of gold and jewels, but a crown of thorns. To be enthroned not in a, a beautiful, magnificent, glorious palace or a temple, but on a cruel cross. Willing to go to the cross in order that we might be saved, that we might have our sins forgiven by taking on himself the charges that were leveled against us. The death penalty that was ours because of sin. Peter says in uh, chapter 3 of his, uh, his first letter, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness of the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. The people of Jesus' day wanted a king. A king who would rescue them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. As Jesus made his way into Jerusalem on this day that we celebrate, the people were expecting, were hoping, were holding out for that sort of king. A king who would save them, a king who would rescue them from the cruelty, the oppression that they were under. A king like the great King David. Hosanna, they cried out. Save us, son of David, save us. Rescue us. Free us from these oppressors, these Romans. Overthrow these invaders. Now, Jesus could have done that in the blink of an eye. That would have been the easy option for Jesus to take. He could have done it. But he knew that wasn't really what the people needed. He knew that wasn't the sort of king he was. He knew that wasn't why he had come from the glory of heaven to be with us for, three, for um, 33 years. That's not the sort of king he was. He came to save them and us, not from political oppression, but spiritual oppression. He came to save us from a death, a death sentence that we couldn't fix, that we couldn't deal with on our own. And for him, that meant death on a cross. The only way that penalty could be paid. Dying in our place so that we could live. Behold, see, look at this. The king comes, has come. Behold, your salvation comes. Riding on a donkey. The king of kings. Our salvation. This is the king 
who invites us to come to him, to bow before him, to acknowledge our need of him, our saviour. Without him, we don't have God. We don't have access to God. We are without God, without hope. Have you done that? Have you come to the king and said, I need you. I need you as my saviour. Have you accepted the salvation that he offers you, this free gift from God? Have you come to him for that living water that quenches our inner thirst? Have you acknowledged your sin and your need of a saviour? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. As we, um, as we bow our heads and as we just st- stop to, to pray, um, there may be some of you here this morning who uh, are seeking this life, this salvation that Jesus offers you. You've recognised uh, your life is a mess, that you need rescuing, that you haven't accepted this free gift that, that Jesus offers you. If that's you, you might like just to pray quietly this prayer with me. Jesus, thank you for the incredible love you have for me. I admit that I'm a sinner, that my life is a mess and I can't fix it on my own. Thank you for paying my debt, bearing my punishment and offering me forgiveness. I turn from my sin and receive you today as my saviour. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for sending your son that we might have forgiveness, that we might have life, life quenching living water. Thank you for what this day today represents, the start of Jesus' journey to the cross, the gift he gave with his life, the victory of the resurrection, the reminder that Jesus is our King. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, help us to stay strong and true to you. Help us not to, to follow after the voices of the crowds, but to, to press in close to you, to hear your gentle voice, to follow your leading, to seek after you alone. We praise you, God. We bless you, Lord. We thank you that you reign supreme and that you are our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.